Hi, everyone. This is Jonah Davids, the producer of the CSBI podcast. Richard is busy this week, so we're releasing a podcast he did recently with Noah Carl, who is an independent researcher, writer, and free speech advocate. The central theme of their discussion is, should we blame the West for the Ukraine crisis? Hope you enjoy. Hello. Welcome to my first podcast, where I'll be discussing the Ukraine crisis with Richard Hanania. He's a writer, researcher, and president of the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology. You can find him on both Twitter and Substack. Our discussion centers on the question, should we blame the West for the Ukraine crisis? Richard takes the position that we should blame the West, at least in part. And although my true position is close to Richard's, I'll try to play devil's advocate, challenging his points and presenting alternative arguments. This is in line with my view that debates are generally more informative than interviews. So, Richard, Russia recently launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. That's one territory, uh, country, launching an invasion of another, neither of which is Western. So why should we blame the West for this? Uh, so first, I mean, thanks for having me here, Noah. I'm honored to be your uh, your first guest. I wish it was under uh, uh, you know uh, less dire circumstances, but nonetheless, you know, I'm honored that of all the people you picked for your first guest, uh, it was me. Um, so the question of um, blame, you know, I, I, one thing I've been I've been on social media a lot. I've been watching the discourse. I've made my arguments out there, and I've seen how people have responded uh, uh, to me. And I think there's so much moralizing. And I think when we frame the question as who's to blame like if you know it's almost impossible to have a conversation like you know i'm almost thought i'm an american so i try to influence american policy you know i don't try to influence russian policy or uh, australian policy or, or anything like that i mean so many of us who are you know um who are skeptical of american foreign policy have been talking about american foreign policy and what it's been doing wrong and then so often people will say but it's you know but it's putin putin is you know putin is worse you know obviously when there's a war uh, the person who starts the war is the uh, immediate cause of it. Um, but this is, you know, th- this cannot be the end of the discussion. So uh, blame, yeah, there's a lot There's a lot of blame to go around. There's a lot of uh, foolish uh, decision-making. Um, and the, you know, the, the question is, you know, what are Russian uh, motivations here? Now, there's two uh, basic, you know, broad ways that people have looked at it. First idea is just that uh, the Putin or Russia or, you know, people who make these arguments usually personalize it and they say Putin is just aggression you know he wants to take over territory um, and he's going to try to do it no matter what and use whatever excuse he wants I mean if he was going to reestablish this you know the the Soviet Union or something like that this is this is sort of the um, this is the this is the argument and you'll see so many comparisons to Hitler and you know this is stuff is almost too stupid to deal with but you see it from like serious people so you have to uh, you have to address it um, and so that's one theory uh, the other theory is that that uh, Russia is reacting to um, what's going on in the Ukraine, and it's going on to what's going on in the West. Uh, so uh, Ukraine was basically uh, a neutral state before 2014. It had Russian influence. It had Western influences. Um, there was a uh, de- it was a democracy. There was a de- democratically elected government that uh, came in and that wanted to uh, deal with wanted to. Um, 
go closer to Russia rather than the EU. There were protests supported by uh, the West that overthrew that that overthrew that government. And what Russia's and what Russia's worried about in this other perspective, which actually takes into account uh, Russia's security and interest in something serious, is that basically you're going to have a state that is geared towards the West that can uh, that could potentially threaten Russia. You know, with with missiles, it can threaten the uh, rights of Russian speakers uh, in the east, particularly in the east of the country. Um, and it can basically be a sort of a cat's paw to to eventually do regime change in in Russia, which Russia sees takes very seriously. The U.S. has been a supporter of color revolutions uh, all over the uh, ex Soviet sphere. Um, and so, when you look at you know the Russian argument that uh, it's actually about NATO expansion, it's actually about uh, American meddling in the region. Um, it makes sense on a few on a few grounds. First of all, this is the thing that they've been saying for a very long time. Um, you know, maybe it's all just lies, but you know, we have we have now uh, close to thirty years of them saying NATO expansion is a big deal. We have records of uh, American leaders uh, until recently saying NATO expansion is a very big deal to them. Uh, people like uh, uh, Colin uh, Powell and uh, uh, Will Burns, the current director of the CIA. You could find you could find quotes like this. You know, WikiLeaks uh, revealed a bunch of this stuff, but also it's been in Congress testimony it's been uh, publicly stated so there's nothing uh, there's nothing secretive here they've been saying it's not just Putin or just one one individual uh, it's basically across the Russian political spectrum they see a threat here and then you can ask you know is, is this rational and you know maybe it's rational or maybe it's not but you all you have to do to understand why they would think this is to look at uh, American behavior when when other countries have tried to make alliances or tried to uh, have any kind of uh, relations with uh, countries in the Western hemisphere uh, particularly geopolitical rivals, the U.S. doesn't like that very much. I mean, the U.S. almost blew up the world uh, uh, over the Cuban Missile Crisis in the early 1960s. Uh, we have something called the Monroe Doctrine that goes back to near the founding of the country, which said basically that uh, the Western Hemisphere was off limits. Even today, you see stuff like headlines, like you know Venezuela is forming uh, relations with China or Russia, and it's something like you know Russia will send like you know a few advisors or something, or there'll be some kind of economic relationship. You know, nothing like NATO expansion, nothing like a defense and military alliance. And we consider that threatening, right? I mean, it's just Venezuela's, you know, not not even that close and it's not even doing that much with other countries, but somehow, you know, we've told ourselves that Venezuela is a threat. Um, so, you know, the level of paranoia that is, invo- that is uh, involved in American foreign policy, it's sort of strange that we can't see how Russia uh, can see uh, a superpower, a rival superpower on its doorstep in the Ukraine. It's, it's really quite baffling. And, you know, I, I, I have a hard time understanding the sort of lack of sort of what people call cognitive empathy to be able to see this. Right. So you've made a number of arguments there and I'd like to address uh, some of them or all of them during this conversation. Uh, you claim that NATO is the real reason why uh, Russia has taken the action it has done in Ukraine, NATO expansion, that is. But Putin gave a speech recently in which he argued did he not that Ukraine is an artificial historical construct and that it ought to be part of Russia? So isn't this pretty strong evidence that Putin does simply want more territory for Russia? Well, I wouldn't say he exactly said Ukraine should be a part of Russia. I mean, the Ukrainian state should be abolished. I don't think he went that far as something that he believes. Um, but 
you know, when people, so the, you know, the idea, the basically, it was, it was, it was an appeal to a, a kind of cultural ethno-nationalism. I mean, and there's truth to the idea that Russia and Ukraine, you know, have very deep uh, historical relations. Um, but you know, does that does that preclude um, the idea that there is a, you know, people can think whatever they want about their neighbors, right? People can think that, you know, forever. People could say this is a, uh, you know, this is something that should be culturally closest to us. I mean, you need that. You need. I don't doubt that there's a psychological aspect here and there's sort of a historical cultural um, idea about Ukraine and its relationship to Russia but you also need the security threat to do something um, as drastic uh, as, as as an invasion you know going to war is a big risk I mean countries often they get sanctioned they get over they get overthrown uh, during during the, during a war um, so I don't so I don't doubt I mean this is part of what you know there is a psychological uh, aspect to this, uh, I mean, but it doesn't it doesn't preclude you know the security concerns, which are eminently reasonable. I mean, another another argument is you know Putin is not just you know a person who is unconstrained and doesn't have to take into account public opinion or anything else. So there was a recent poll before the war started, where by two, a two to one margin, if you asked Russians, would you go to war um, to stop uh, Ukraine from joining NATO? Uh, by a two to one margin, the, the Russians said yes. Now, if you ask them, would you go to war uh, to annex uh, Ukraine? a slight majority said no i mean so you know a lot of people do want to would want to go to war to annex ukraine um but it's uh but it's not it's not a majority of russians or even a plurality of russians according to that poll so if you think that uh the russians have the russian leadership has to take into account domestic politics um you know even even if there was an aggressive leader um you know nato expansion and the threat of nation nato expand expansion uh makes it much easier uh to sell the war even now as is um there's a, you know, there's a huge anti-war. Uh, there's, I don't know about huge, but there's there's some kind of you know anti-war sentiment in Russia uh, that the media has been been covering. And you know, you can imagine that if it wasn't for if it wasn't for the threat of NATO expansion, if it wasn't for uh, American expansion into Eastern Europe, um, there would be a lot more of that. People would see it as much more completely unjustified. So you don't accept that uh, Putin's statements about NATO expansion are just a pretext for him to grab more territory for Russia at all. I mean, no, maybe, I mean, like at this point, maybe, I mean, it could, you know, it could be that, you know, they've gotten to this point and they've, you know, they just think that there's no other way to stop NATO expansion, but there's a, you know, there's a dynamic here in which, yes, there's people who think, you know, there's people within Russia who are extreme nationalists, you know, maybe this is Putin uh, or, or not. And maybe these people, they, you know, they want an opportunity to, uh, uh, to act and they would have wanted to act anyway. I mean, it was like after uh, September 11th in this country, there were some people who wanted to, uh, go to war with Iraq before September 11th, um, and then they found their opportunity. They were high up in the Bush administration, and they were able to uh, uh, they were able to do so. But without 9/11, I think mo- nobody would doubt, or very few people would doubt, that we would have we would not have ended up going into Iraq, right? So it was a combination of things. It was these people who wanted to go into Iraq, these neoconservatives who had a very hawkish view about the American role in the world and some uh, Middle Eastern obsessions, and then it was the events of 9/11 that provided some kind of you know security threat uh, to the U.S. That that made, you know, that brought us into the war. Uh, so everything, you know, everything is multi-causal. That's why just like a simple, ex- simplistic explana- explanation um, that, you know, uh, that, you know, it, it's all this or it's all that. I mean, it's, is a, and trying to like assign blame to one side or the other. I mean, that's not very productive. It's the question is, what have we been doing as the United States? Have we made an outcome like this, a uh, bloody war? Have we made it more or less likely? And what could our, you know, what could our government have been doing better um, in the meantime? So if, uh, NATO or the US 
hadn't been meddling in Ukraine or in Eastern Europe in general, uh, and Putin invaded Ukraine, you would accept that that was totally illegitimate and that the West bore no responsibility whatsoever. I mean, it, sure. I mean, if if Putin, if there was nothing to, you know, for if there was, uh, you know, sort of nothing going on, Russia was my, you know, Russia was minding his own business. Ukraine was minding its own business. The U.S. was not trying to uh, expand NATO or form a defense alliance with uh, Ukraine or meddling in its internal politics. Um, and then Russia invaded. You know, so that, I'm not saying that Russia is even in this case is uh, is blameless. You know, starting a war is is a bad thing. Countries should not do it. Um, but yeah, of course. I mean, if you know, if they, I think the people who's who argue that you know uh, Putin is just you know something like akin to Hitler, and he's just going to invade people no matter what, whatever he can get away with. I mean, they would have a much better case um, if there was no U.S. Uh, uh, intervention in Eastern Europe or uh, NATO expansion. But you know, that's not that's not the world we live in. We live in the world where these people have been in charge, and they've led us to this point. Okay, so you you talk about U.S. intervention in Eastern Europe or in Ukraine in particular. But what's wrong with that? Doesn't every country's or every country's leaders have a right to uh, engage with whomever they please, including the United States? Uh, I mean, as a gen- as a general matter, yeah. I mean, the U.S. has a you know has a you could say has a right or not. I mean, this this, this is talk about rights. I mean, I think people, a lot of people in international relations say this is sort of, you know, a smokescreen for, uh, you know, these are just arguments people make, but I, you know, we take, let's take morality, uh, serious, seriously. Um, you know, does, is the U S a consistent defender of, um, democracy and the right of people to make their own decisions? Not, not really. I mean, they, they supported, you know, the overthrow of the, uh, 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 Yanukovych government in 2014, even though they had agreed to new elections, it was just the, you know, they were, uh, you know, the, they supported, uh, the, the, uh, coup that just basically got rid of the government right away and made made the president, uh, flee to flee to Russia. Um, you know, the U S has overthrown democracies in its, in its past, um, um, and so, you know, it's not really a very, cons- you know, it's not a real consistent uh, principle we live by. Maybe more often than not, we're on the side of democracy and people determining their own affairs. But, you know, a lot of time we're not. So like this idea that we have this principle always and everywhere, that's just that's just uh, not true. And then the question is, you know, if the U.S. has a right, you know, and then also, I mean, there's just the fact that we do not allow this in in our own backyard you know the idea it's just crazy when you hear people um when you hear uh people in the american establishment uh say things like you know uh, we don't have um you know we don't have uh, spheres of influence that, uh, anymore you know that should that should not be something that people do uh in the 21st century and you just have to be completely ignorant of american history and current american practice uh to buy into this i mean there was just a story a year or two ago where uh, uh the u.s sought to uh sought to arrest the uh, uh the defense minister of Mexico uh, because he was involved with uh, with uh, the drug trade. I mean, the U.S. does this all the time. Latin American countries are basically dictated to, particularly on on drugs for you know strange you know strange reasons um, that are you know historically contingent and weird. Uh, but on all on you know on all kinds of things. Um, so you know the moral argument. I mean, you just if you have to like you have to just be blind to everything else going on in the world uh, to take that seriously as a motivator of American politics. Okay, yeah, I want to come back to the issue of America um, responding uh, in a hostile way to what it sees as uh, incursions into its own backyard. But let's go back to Ukraine for a second. Uh, You say that the US supported the overthrow of Yanukovych, but wasn't Yanukovych overthrown by his own people? Wasn't that the democratic will of Ukraine? 
Well, I mean, is is uh, you know that this is sort of you know splitting hairs. Is it dem- is it a, a democratic will to have a government that was elected, and then the people go to the streets, um, and then you know that government um, that government is is removed. I mean, people can say that's the democratic will, or they could say it's uh, you know it's not. I mean, particularly at, you know there was uh, uh, the Yanukovych government uh, reacted with some brutality towards the protest. There was a lot of things that the protests did wrong too. But this is you know this is sort of a. You know, this is this is this is splitting hairs. I mean, I think that look, if there was a Demo- you could just do a thought experiment. If there was a, uh, if it was a completely democratic system that wanted to uh, that produced a um, leader that wanted to ally with Russia, I mean, there's no way that the U.S. would like this. That there's no way that the U.S. would not be trying to overthrow the uh, that government. I mean, the U.S. has been involved. I mean, it was the, this is clear during the Cold War, but it's been clear since in interfering in um, uh, democratic elections in order to get the uh, to get the results that it wants. I um, mean, in places like Italy and Japan in the in the post world in the uh, post uh, second world after the Second World War. Um, so, you know, you know what what is democracy? I mean, and in, in, you know, in Ukraine, uh, you know, before the invasion, I mean, the country was basically outlawing Russian uh, language education. Um, it was outlawing uh, Russian media, all language, all. Uh, all media in Russian, you know, they, not just a few st- uh, news stations, which they say this is, you know, Russian propaganda during wartime. It was basically, there was a language law that basically said, um, you know, the, not officially, but this was going to be the effect. Everyone agreed that it would basically make uh, make it impossible to have Russian language media. Um, and so is that, I mean, is that democratic? I mean, we, we look the other way because, you know, there's, uh, you know, we've, we've decided already that Russia was the enemy, whatever, you know, Ukraine was doing, that was democratic because they were standing up to Russia and they were trying to ally with the West. West. Um, so there's, you know, there's, you know, this sort of notion that this is about the U.S. being on the side of democracy and, and other people not being on the side of democracy. Um, you know, there's truth to it. I won't deny that the U.S. is probably, you know, on average, much more pro-democracy than Russia, but it's very selective. Um, it, you know, it's, it's not as simple as uh, people like to think. Okay, so let's let's go to the issue of the U.S. dealing with its own backyard. Isn't that basically because the U.S. is the global hegemon, so it gets to abide by different rules than everyone else? Russia is a second or third tier power, uh, and it doesn't enjoy the same uh, entitlements. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's one kind of justification. Um you know, there's nothing in international law that says you know one country is a you know the uh, the the biggest power and then you know the third biggest power uh, can't do you know similar things too. So it's a, it's an argument based on sort of pure uh, might makes right. But I mean, if that's you know if that's the argument, then it's a uh, it's something that other people can challenge when they when they have the uh, the balance of power uh, in their own region. So it doesn't really give us you know much to work with as far as what the U.S. should be doing and what Russia shouldn't be doing. But if we're dealing with the issue of uh, what caused or contributed to this crisis in Ukraine? And one response is, well, Russia didn't want Ukraine to take certain decisions that it has done or didn't want the West to take certain decisions in coordination with Ukraine on the grounds that this is its sphere of influence. Uh, couldn't one just respond, well, Russia doesn't get to have a sphere of influence. Ukraine is a is a sovereign country and it can do what it wants. 
I mean, yeah, you. I mean, you could say you could say that. Um, you know, but then, like I said, I mean, that's inconsistent with a lot of other American behavior about what countries are allowed to do or not allowed to do. Um, if it, you know, so we have to distinguish whether you're making sort of a legal argument or a moral argument or just a might make right makes right argument. I mean, if it's a might makes right argument, Russia right now is saying no. You know, we do get to have a sphere of influence, and they're gonna you know go to war, and they're gonna um, you know they're gonna bomb people, and they're gonna send troops into the country to to assert the the alternative perspective um so you know you could you could say that as a moral ground but when you're saying it on, on moral grounds you have to ask is the u.s you know is does the u.s live by this or is it just very selectively used um when basically it can peel countries off from other countries uh, uh that it considers adversaries and i think i think that's that's clearly the case i don't think you know i think that there's uh you know there's so much in american foreign policy that is just not consistent with the idea that we're always spreading democracy. I mean, if you look at something like Iran and Saudi Arabia, I mean, Iran is a much, much more democratic country than Saudi Arabia. It has elections. I mean, the elections actually matter. Um, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf monarchies don't have anything uh, like this. Um, so it, it just, it doesn't explain much about American foreign policy because there's so many things you could look at and say, look, you know, we're, we're, we're not on the side of democracy. We're not on the side of self-determination in, in all these cases. Um, so, you know, why, why would we take that seriously here as sort of the driver of American foreign policy? But couldn't one take the view that no major country, including America, is entitled to oh, sphere yeah. of influence in which it uh, interferes in the sovereignty of neighboring states, and yeah. hence both the U.S. and Russia are in the wrong? Uh, sure, that is a completely d- defensible position. Yeah, I think if either country didn't care about Ukraine, there wouldn't be uh, a conflict. Um, you know, I think. Uh, Russia is probably more justified in caring about Ukraine because it's on its border. And, you know, even though if you care about the cultural, historical significance of Ukraine to Russia, it makes sense. I mean, there's no like even plausible security argument for why the U.S. Um, uh, would care what government was in Ukraine. So you could, you know, I think I think the Russia security concerns here are much more understandable. Uh, but, you know, morally, you know, for the idea, you know, that neither side should be neither country or no, uh, no side should be basically intervening in the affairs of its neighbors. I mean, that's a perfectly defensible uh, moral position. I think it's sort of, I think it's naive. I mean, it'd be nice to get to that point. I mean, I, I don't think we're anywhere close to that. And I think a country that did adopt that view would probably get, you know, uh, encircled by one of the other uh, powers. I mean, I think the U.S. can adopt. I mean, I don't think there's a much of a threat China coming and like, you know, forming alliance with all of Latin America. I mean, I think just the U.S. is so uh, dominant in the Western hemisphere that nobody really has a chance. But I mean, if Russia or China um, took that position and didn't try to influence its neighbors at all, I mean, I think the U.S. would try to move in and basically limit uh, the, the 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 power and the sovereignty and the freedom of movement of, of those countries themselves. So you can understand what, you know, why they react, why they react, how they do. But there's a difference, isn't there, between Russia and before it, the Soviet Union interfering in, in its, its neighbor's affairs and in other countries' affairs around the world, because it was a totalitarian dictatorship, whereas the US, for all its faults, is a, is a liberal democracy. And while there may be exceptions, it generally does promote democracy around the world. I mean, yeah, I mean, some, it, it does promote democracy around the world. I mean, sometimes that's been, 
you know, terrible. I mean, the uh, Iraq, I mean, the, you know, the U.S. killed hundreds of thousands of people promoting uh, democracy in Afghanistan. Um, you know, there was a, there was a 20 year, uh, 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 civil war, uh, while the U.S. tried to uh, install democracy. And then the civil war ended the moment the Americans left and the Americans went and then sanctioned that country. And it's now undergoing a terrible, uh, famine. So, you know, just because they, you know, you could say the Soviet Union would say, probably say, you know, we're trying to, uh, uh, you know, spread communism and make, you know, everyone, uh, you know, uh, better off and have a, have a good life. It's a, um, it's something that, you know, that uh you know it's, it's ideologically something you know consistent that they could say um the u.s you know democracy you could say it spreads democracy sometimes that works out well uh sometimes that works out terribly um but it, it's at least an honest argument look i i will say like the the idea that you know the, there's nothing um you know there's not no threat from nato expansion that russia doesn't really care about nato that the us is actually defending its own material interests here i think that those arguments are very hard to make with a straight face uh the idea that america is just morally superior and it should just spread democracy um and that's what you know most people want most of the time i think that's at least defensible i don't think that's a crazy argument now we can get into the practicalities of whether that leads us to a good place but i do think it's at least a you know there's nothing inherently just you know ridiculous or self-contradictory about that argument okay so going back to ukraine then shouldn't we put ourselves in the ukrainian shoes they want to live in a prosperous country and they want to have a sense of security which they can't have while russia this belligerent country with a gigantic military is on their borders threatening them so they have every right to join nato if that's what they want I mean, yeah. I mean, in theory, look, you have to, you know, in theory, yes. I mean, the, you know, there wasn't, you know, I, I haven't seen actually the latest polls on uh, Ukraine and NATO. I know, you know, five, 10 years ago, um, I, I, you know, it was, it was split or there was actually a majority uh, against it or a plurality against it. So it's not, you know, it's not, it's not clear, um, you know, you know, how we got like people choosing. I mean, now I think there's probably uh, is a majority, but, you know, that changes, you know, uh, across time. I mean, there was a uh, democratic elected government that wanted to sign a uh, economic agreement with Russia, and you know that <laughs> that was overthrown. So it's you know these you know you take polls and you take you know democratic will, and it sort of changes um, over time. So it's hard to like look at a country, you know, like the way we look at a, a person and say this is what this country wants. I mean, look at your you know in your country Brexit. I mean the you know the British people you know I think voted like fifty two to forty eight to want uh, Brexit. If someone had a new election and then you know uh, it was uh, they voted against Brexit. I mean, and they wanted to rejoin. Uh, uh, the EU, you know, what would be the democratic will? It's sort of, you know, these are sort of, uh, these are games. I don't think they, pr- I don't think they provide much um, guide to uh, foreign policy. I think probably, I mean, I think what we had 10 years ago, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I like to think more in terms of what's not going to lead to disaster, what's not going to lead to war, what's not going to lead to a potential uh, nuclear exchange. And this is, you know, this is the low problem. This is what, you know, what concerns me the most. This is the low probability event, you know, the two or 3% chance we're going to have a nuclear exchange over this. You know, that's what I'm thinking about more than in terms of, you know, like what's this country's choice or what's that country's choice. I mean, the, you know, that stuff is nice to have. Um, but if, you know, if the, I, you know, if Ukrainian sovereignty, if we can even agree with that, you know, what that is and what that means and what the will of the people is, if, you know, if we have that, um, 
you know, if, if the cost of that is a war between the US and Russia, or even a war that's going to devastate Ukraine, because that's what we're seeing uh, right now, you know, I question whether, you know, these are sort of these, you know, this idea that you can just have principles without regard for the consequences. I think this is uh, something that uh, John Mersheim or other realists would say is, is a, can will lead you to disaster in foreign policy. And I think they're generally right about that. So if, if uh, Ukraine stays or stayed within Russia's sphere of influence, as realists might say it should have, wouldn't it languish in corruption and lack of economic development? On the other hand, if it was brought into the West sphere of influence and, say, integrated into the EU and NATO, wouldn't it enjoy the same prosperity that, say, Poland and the Baltic states now enjoy? And isn't denying them that on the grounds that Russia gets to have a sphere of influence unjust? Well, I mean, the worst thing for, you know, for your economic uh, circumstances is war. So, I mean, if, you know, if the, if the, if that you're worried about economic growth, I mean, that's the first thing you should try to prevent from happening. It's not a guarantee. You know, it's not like, um, under, uh, like the Soviet system where you were guaranteed if you adopted the Soviet system, you were going to be worse off than if you adopted the, uh, the capital system. I mean, Belarus has done better than, uh, Ukraine. Um, Belarus has been tired, uh, tied more closely to Russia, uh, since the collapse of the, uh, uh Soviet Union. It's done okay. I mean, Kazakhstan has done uh, okay for itself. It's pretty close to uh, Russia. I mean, has has oil wealth. I mean, Russia itself has done has been um, has had better economic growth and is better economically than Ukraine. Um, again, this is you know guess. So there's complicating factors here. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think you know, I think that you know, it's it, there's there's nothing that precludes getting wealthy within the Rus- Russian uh, sphere of influence. Maybe you're more likely to um, within the EU sphere of influence. But I, it's not even like. You know, there's. It's not even clear that Russia. You know, we probably wouldn't like Ukraine. Uh, uh, you know, uh, economically integrating completely with Western Europe, but it doesn't. I don't think that that's as important as uh, the security concerns, NATO, the uh, the U.S. military advisors, the potential troops there. Um, you know, the the sort of the cultural, you know, nationalism that's going into uh, attacking. You know, the Russian speakers and their and their ability to educate their children and uh, uh, their ability to have their own media. Um, I think these things are are more important uh, to Russia. So, I, you know, I. Think Think that like yeah i would say that uh yeah first of all i mean avoid war i mean avoid nuclear war humanity needs to survive and you know having <laughs> having a war is just bad for the for the economy and second i don't think um you know giving up on nato and giving up on the things that really bother russia the most are necessarily uh fatal uh for economic growth i think you can do economically well it depends on having you know uh smart policies dealing with corruption all these other things when you refer to the shutting down of um television channels in uh, in Ukraine wasn't this motivated by the discovery on the part of the Ukrainian authorities that uh, a, a very influential russian backed politician was uh, plotting a coup against them yeah i mean that's what they say i mean it's hard for us from you know judging outside it's always you know it's it's hard to judge these things but i mean it's not just a few channels so whatever we think of you know uh the the these individual cases um you know, the, the, this is re- reported in the Western press. It's reported in Radio for Europe. That basically, there's a language law that says if you produce something in a different language other than Ukrainian, you have to produce like the equivalent in Ukrainian. So if you have like a Russian language newspaper, um, that you basically have to write like the same newspaper every day in, in Ukrainian, right? And so people, and so what? Uh, even uh, Radio for Europe, which is funded by the American government, uh, I think maybe officially, you know, affiliated with the American government. Uh, I think yeah, it's part of the State Department, I believe. Um, they're basically um, they. Uh, 
you know, that they admit that the, the, the goal of this is to shut down Russian media. So, you know, even if you have like legitimate concerns about certain outlets, uh, what's going on in Ukraine has gotten uh, way beyond that. And even the Hungarians, I mean, the Hungarians have said they wouldn't let Ukraine jo- join NATO because there are some Hungarians um, in Ukraine and they're not, all, they're not going to be allowed anymore uh, to um, educate children in their own language. So, I mean, there's a, you know, a lot of, um, you know, there's a, the, the, this goes, I think this goes beyond what you'd say is sort of common sense secu- security interest. Now, maybe countries have a right to do this, but you can understand why uh, there would be reaction on the Russian side. So in general, do you believe that powerful countries have a right to or or can be expected to interfere in the affairs of other countries if populations living in those other countries happen to send to descend from the same stock as theirs? You know, it's not about, I mean, it's not about right. I mean, I, I think that, you know, I think to talking about rights, even for like, I'm not a philosophy person. So even for individuals, when we talk about, you know, rights for individuals, I'm a little bit, you know, I, I think more in terms of uh, uh, utilitarian uh, uh, calculation, right? So for countries, I mean, the idea of what is right and, you know, who has a right to do what to be is even more uh, sort of a fuzzy uh, concept. You know, I, I think more in terms of what is going to achieve, um, you know, a world where we have prosperity, where we have the uh, lowest chances for armed conflict, where we have lowest chances for particularly great power war. I mean, if you if you you t- if you have to choose between a world where you have more little wars but fewer big wars, you you want to have more little wars because the big wars can be just so destructive with nuclear exchange. You know, the big wars, World War One, World War Two, these kill orders of magnitude uh, more people than the uh, uh, than the smaller wars. Um, so this is the way you know I, I think in these terms, and generally countries, I think care about their neighbors and the big the large powers i think that's reasonable i mean i think that you know there should be probably be moral suasion i think people who oppose american foreign policy in latin america for example i mean it would you know be great for them to advocate to, uh for the u.s to uh treat latin american countries uh differently it wouldn't be great for china or russia to come build bases you know on our doorstep i mean that's going to end in a very bad case even though they could say well look you know uh venezuela you know they have a right to they have a right to have their own uh to choose their own alliances and you know do what they wanted foreign affairs, I think that would be disastrous because the you know the potential fallout of that, I mean, could be destructive for the planet. I mean, it could it could potentially end you know millions and millions of lives. Um, so yeah, I think that. Uh, you know, accepting that countries have a sphere of influence the, that the great powers do, I think is better than the alternative, which is countries going to the other side of the world. Um, you know, sometimes egging on these countries to, to fight up to, uh, to stand up to the person in their backyard. You know, often, you know, the country that's coming in from the outside doesn't, you know, is not as powerful as it thinks, doesn't have as much local knowledge, you know, just comes in and sort of screws everything up. Um, so, you know, I guess I, I, the way I'd put it is if you have to choose between what's more dangerous, an idealistic foreign policy or one based on spheres of influence, I think the idealistic foreign policy is much more dangerous because I think that's the one that potentially leads to great power war. Shouldn't we promote the view that every country is sovereign and every country should be peaceful? And where and if this country isn't peaceful, then there may be a role for a hegemon to intervene, but only to maintain peace. Yeah, I'm not. I mean, I'm not against. I am not against that. I think that's you know that's good. I mean, I think that's great uh, as an ideal. Um, that's not what the U.S. is doing. That's not what Russia is doing, of, cor- of course. Um, but no, I don't, I don't disagree with you that that would be a great ideal. Now, I, I disagree that the, it's the U.S. that should be the enforcer of this rule because that's like I said that that gets us to a place with a uh, huge tail end risks. But isn't 
isn't that isn't the i the arrangement that you just described as an ideal essentially what nato is um i don't you know so nato is the nato is the idea that every country should be sovereign to determine its own affairs i mean nato is a um is a defense alliance so it has a um you know it has a um you know officially a defense i mean it also went into afghanistan um so you know i mean it, it, it did you know nato i mean it was uh uh stayed there for uh a decade you know before the u.s t- took over the mission so i mean it's all you know they, that's sort of you know, questionable whether it's about, you know, NATO's also like sailing through the South China Sea and doing, uh, or ta- at least talking about it. I don't know if NATO's officially done it yet. Uh, so it's at least talking about um, taking sort of more uh, pr- provocative action. But I mean, the other thing that NATO NATO does is it basically, um, you know, it's, it's uh, it you know, it's, it's seen as a potential threat for, for good reason, because it brings missiles and it brings bases, uh, you know, towards Russia. Um, and, you know, countries, you know, you could say, well, that's sovereignty, that's their right to do this. Is this, is this the path to world peace? You know, I, I don't think so. But it is a voluntary defense alliance. It's not a, it's not an involuntary aggressive alliance. Um, it's, it is, it is indeed, uh, vol- yeah, it's voluntary, um, you know, and it is a yeah, defense, mostly it's a defense alliance, but it's at the same time. I mean, I don't think that looks, I don't think it looks like, you know, that's the self-perception of NATO. I don't think when you make, you know, when you make an alliance with a country's neighbors, I don't think this is the way the U.S. would per- perceive it. Um, uh, you know, and they, you know, there's a, the, um, like my old, uh, uh, who I work, uh, Rob Jer- Bob Jervis, who I worked with at Columbia. I mean, he's he's written a lot about this. I mean, people, you know, people will think often that their actions that are taken are defensive. I mean, they'll be seen as offensive from the other side. So, uh, you know, if if China was building military bases, if it was putting missiles uh, around the U.S., I mean, the U.S. would not consider that uh, defensive. The U.S. would consider that offensive. So it's really it is in the eye of the beholder. I mean, we you know that's our. Uh, perspective, but given the American history of intervening in other countries and uh, engaging in regime change, um, and you know other Western countries to a more limited extent, I mean it's it's you know it's not crazy that other countries don't see it that way. But it's isn't it perfectly reasonable for Eastern European countries that have U.S. bases and even nuclear weapons in them to want those bases there? Uh, given what happened after World War Two, uh, namely that the Soviet Union invaded all of eastern europe and uh brought it under its influence yeah i'm much less you know i'm much less um i'm much less harsh on the decision making of these eastern european countries i mean so you know if you can have an alliance with a country that's gonna defend you with at no cost um i think a lot of countries you know would take that i mean we just have to question whether it's good for the united states whether it's potentially good for for the world so yeah i'm less harsh on um those countries than i am on american foreign policy decision making because yeah i I understand why they would want that okay so um i'm running out of arguments as to why uh the west has no had no role to play in this crisis um, so why don't we discuss the crisis itself and in particular what might be done about it? So at this point, uh, there's heavy fighting going on in various parts of Ukraine and the casualties are piling up on both sides uh, and civilians are also dying. So what should the West do or what would it do if it was acting rationally according to you? Uh, so before the war broke out, I mean, I predicted that there, you know, that the intelligence was probably correct that war was going to uh, break out, and 
you know, I did just what I would recommend we do follows from the logic of what I've been saying. Go for a no, go for a no NATO guarantee. Uh, give it to, give it to the Ukrainians. Make Ukraine a uh, neutral state. Um, you know, I think that I think that. Um, uh, and then, you know, the idea was, I think you have to recognize, um, you have to, you're going to have to recognize Crimea as part of Russia, maybe Donetsk and Luhansk. I mean, these are, you know, relatively small parts of the country, but I think that, you know, once a country takes, uh, once a, once a great power takes land, I don't think it's giving it, giving it back. And then hopefully Russia would, um, pull back and you would maintain Ukrainian independence, but without, uh, without moving towards NATO, you'd probably have to discuss the, um, uh, the, uh, question of Russians, uh, uh, Russian language speakers and, uh, ethnic Russians and sort of their, their, uh, uh, their rights within that framework. Um, but, you know, this is what I was saying before the war. And I, you know, this is, uh, this is what, um, you know, this is, the, I think the path to peace now, right now, the, uh, uh, the Russians are saying that basically what they want is, uh, no NATO, uh, you know, they, they say recognition of Crimea and they want, uh, you know, um, they want, uh, you know, things like demilitarization and denazification, which sort of sounds, uh, crazy, but, you know, you can, you could at least negotiate. I would, I would start with NATO, you know, it's possible that, um, it's possible, you know, I'm not saying it's impossible that the well is so poisoned at this point that even if you did do the no NATO pledge and you did, uh, uh, um, you did give them a uh, recognition of, say, Crimea and, and Donetsk and Luhansk, that Russia wouldn't keep wanting to fight and would want to um, annex territory. Uh, that would be that would be unfortunate, but you know I can't say that's impossible. But you know, it, look, you're not they're not going to give up Crimea anyway. Um, they're not going to Ukraine's not going to join NATO anyway now because Russia is there and it's going to it's going to fight to to stop it. I mean, so that's going to achieve that goal no matter what. Uh, so you know, at that point, I think you should sort of negotiate around these realities and try, try to hope Hopefully end the bloodshed. But didn't Russia include the among its demands that uh, Ukraine must be demilitarized and denazified? Something that's obviously unreasonable, precisely because it want, it wanted its it didn't want its demands to be met because it wanted a pretext for invasion. Well, that's I mean that's that's possible that that's their motivation. But look, you can you can look at when, when the Americans say you know uh, Crimea has to go back to Ukraine. The Russian side can be say, well, that's unrealistic. That's not going to happen. That's never going to be met. Uh, so therefore, um, you know, we we just know the Americans are aggressive and trying to overthrow us. Uh, so uh, you know, it, it's like yeah, I mean that would be uh, I mean these are pretty extreme. These sound like pretty extreme demands. What demilitarization means? I mean, we you know we have to. This is what you have negotiations for. I mean, this is the part. This is the things you talk about. And you try to reach it agreement um denazification i mean the you know there there are nazis there were nazis connected to the um interior ministry i mean the 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 policies of uh uh the ukrainian government towards russian speakers i mean it's exaggeration to call it neo-nazi but i mean like you know it's like it's it's pretty bad and you can see how it's you know russia with its own history you can see how it looks like sort of nazism uh, from their perspective so you have to talk about sort of what that means um but you know these weren't these weren't always the i mean these weren't always the demands i mean russia didn't always say you know ukraine uh you know needs to have um uh uh you know needs to not have a military if that's what demilitarization i don't know what demilitarization means i mean you have to you have to sort of get down you have to get down to that and then the um the stuff about denazification i mean it never came up before because the russian speakers you know had their own rights and the russian language you know had its own legal status and legal protections um so you know some of this stuff it's like you know they're, they're trying to go back just five or ten years um to a point where you know Ru- russia had uh Russian had you know protection as an official language demilitarization. Yeah, I don't know exactly what that means. I'm not saying you know Russia is just you know has the um, 
you know, I, I think the I think the West and you know economic markets have done a good job of sort of raising the costs of the the Russian intervention. It it doesn't mean anything if you can't get to a place uh, where you could eventually agree. Um, and you know, at this point, the basic stuff: NATO NATO is going to be off the table for Ukraine. Uh, you know, getting Crimea back that's that uh, that's off the table. I think you have to just accept that. And then the other stuff, you know, what demilitarization means, what neutral status look like. I think that's what you you work on. Now, it's not impossible. It's not impossible that you're you're right. It's not impossible that Russia just wants to annex Ukraine at this point. I don't think that was always the goal. Obviously, I think that that I think that that's sort of you know they became more frustrated over time, and they may be just getting more pessimistic about um, uh, keeping it in its sphere of influence. And you know, public opinion it seems to be shifting uh, away from Russia and towards uh, wanting to join the West. It's definitely not the same place five or ten years that it was five or ten years ago. Um, so maybe Russia says we have to just annex it. Or, or or control it, or maybe Russia says, um, you know, as long as we get the guarantee that's somehow enforceable that they won't be part of NATO. I mean, the Ukrainian, you know, the Ukrainian people can have their own uh, attitudes towards Russia or, or whatever, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, this is, um, you know, the, nobody has perfect insight into sort of what uh, the Russians' motivations are right now. Uh, but my suggestion would be accepting sort of the basic military realities, um, accepting the, you know, what's going to happen with Crimea and uh, NATO, and then going from there. So presumably, this would involve Western leaders contacting the Russians and say, "Let's all sit down and negotiate." What if the Russians refuse and they say? No, because their intention all along was to annex all of Ukraine. What should the West do then? Yeah, I think it's I think it's a difficult. I mean, I think it's a difficult situation. I don't think you know. I think that we still have to try to avoid uh, uh, great power war. I mean, even like supporting the Ukrainians to, you know, to get rid of the Russians. Um, that that is that what that looks like is a multi decade bloody civil war. That's the worst possible outcome for Ukraine. Um, so I wouldn't support you know a guerrilla guerrilla war. I mean, I would support <laughs> I would support basically. Um, I, you know, I, I would I would try to work on basically uh, try to stabilize the situation if that means russia annexation if that's what it's if that's what it's bent on doing i mean that's what it's going to do and the, the, the basic question is is the u.s going to go to war for that i don't think it would and i don't think it should and i think it's dangerous if even we start talking about that so you know i think you know i think that you know russia wants some things from the west i mean russia you know it doesn't like these economic sanctions i mean you could you should you if you know now that we've done them, we should use them in a smart way connect them clearly um to some kind of uh, humane uh, peaceful outcome um but if russia's goals are maximalist you know i think it's just a tough truth people are going to have to swallow that it's going to get its way in ukraine you said that um the worst possible outcome would be a you know a decade or multi-decade civil war. But haven't didn't you write in one of your Substack articles that you thought an insurgency was very unlikely because of the terrain in Ukraine and because of the demographics? Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I, I tended to think that, and I still, I still pretty much think that. I mean, I think that, that that's, you know, the a multi-decade civil war. No, I think I've adjusted my priors a little bit. I mean, I have a new Substack that came out today that people can uh, look at, and I, I didn't think the Ukraine, I predicted the invasion, but I didn't think um, the Ukrainian resistance would be what it is. You know, that being said, it hasn't even been, uh, it hasn't even been a week yet. So you know, it took the U.S. three weeks to conquer Baghdad. Um, so we don't, we don't know. But yeah, I would be, you know, I would be, you know, multi-decade, you know, a decade uh, long insurgency is a very long time. It doesn't happen 
Uh, that often is usually special cases where there's a lot of geographic factors. So I think like if the U.S. did nothing, you know, I, you know, if the West did nothing, basically, you know, I think that, uh, you know, I'd be surprised if this went on very long, right? The, the, the basically, the country would be pacified. Um, but, you know, when you have, this is an un, a sort of unprecedented situation because you have all of Europe and the United States just making it sort of a, a cost celebrity. So I think that what you, what you have in that situation is you may have basically uh, enough ability to keep the war going, but not enough ability to actually uh, kick the Russians out or end the war. Um, and that would be, you know, that would be the worst possible case because you know this is sort of what happened in Syria uh, where the U where the U.S. basically supported the rebels. It wasn't enough to overthrow the government. You know, if they would have overthrown the government, I mean, those rebels. I mean, they were there were some bad characters among them, so probably wouldn't been wouldn't have even been the best thing in that case. Uh, but basically, you sanctioned the country. Uh, you 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 know you weakened it. Um, you supported uh, rebels trying to overthrow it, and then you basically just kept the civil war going for a long time until uh, the government got control of you know at least most of the population centers. Um, that is a terrible. That is a terrible outcome from Ukraine. You know, I do not wish that on anybody. Being part of you know a Russian Union is is you know is not is not worse than that. I'm I'm, I'm sorry. Um, I think it's just something you know we have to face. Um, you know, Ukrainians can make their own decisions, but I think if you're thinking about this from the outside, from a humanitarian perspective, and what uh, you know decreases the risk to the greatest extent possible. I mean, another reason not to have a um, you know, not to have a multi-decade long insurgency, just the longer that this goes, the more likely you have an escalation where you do have um, something happens where the, you know, the US and Russia end up in some kind of a major war or even a nuclear exchange. And that's another reason to end the war quickly because it's, you know, that that's the, that's, you know, the tail end risk. That's the, that's the nightmare scenario that we don't want to see. But why are you so convinced that uh, arming Ukraine, um, in the form of prov providing uh, missile launchers and advanced other forms of advanced weaponry, combined with the uh, really serious economic sanctions that have already been imposed, couldn't bring Vladimir Putin to the negotiating table quite quickly and uh, result in a better outcome for the West and for Ukraine. Well, I mean, I hope I hope he does. I mean, I hope he does come to the look. But you know, we're talking about different scenarios. So if it's a scenario where they're just bent on annexation. Um, you know, countries can face really bad economic sanctions and a lot of isolation and stay going. I mean, Syria, I just mentioned. North Korea, I mean, we were, we reduced North Korea to famine status. And the government is still there. It's not basically doing, you know, whatever the U.S. wants. Um, Venezuela, look, I mean, look what's happened to that country in the last uh, few years, ever since the U.S. started sanctioning heavy Cuba. You know, we've had 50 years. And so all these countries are less powerful than Russia. And, you know, they're more able, to, we're more able to cut them off for the world. And it doesn't really change their behavior on the core, on the core issues they, they care about. Um, so, you know, it's like, you know, we could wake up tomorrow or maybe by the time, even by the time people hear this, and there could be a new government in Russia or Russia could have folded did um historically i don't think that's i don't think that's what happens i think that you just basically you raise the cost you just keep the war going and then you know it has to find a settlement at um some point so you know that you know that could be outcome i mean that would be great actually great outcome because it would uh uh you know it would avoid uh further bloodshed but you know i am afraid that's not going to happen i'm afraid it's especially not going to happen because i don't you know i don't think we're in the position where we're going to give the nato guarantee or we're going to give the crimea uh you know recognition of crimea and if we don't do that then you know i think there's zero chance of that even if Putin is overthrown, um, you look at Russian public opinion on Crimea. Countries, superpowers don't give back land. If that's our demand for settling it, we're going to keep arming the Ukrainians until uh, until Russia gives back um, Crimea. Um, this war will last forever, and you know we we don't want that to happen. 
But if we allow Russia to keep Ukraine, uh, sorry, keep Crimea and potentially the two breakaway regions uh, in the east of Ukraine, doesn't the West look weak? And don't we give an incentive to the next authoritarian dictator to grab land on his country's borders? Um, you know, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to say because people say, well, you know, they may, it makes you, uh, look weak. And, you know, I think we, you know, I think we, I think actually, you know, in some cases on some things we want to look weak because we're telling, we're telling the truth. Like we're not going to go to war over, um, you know, these countries in, uh, uh, China, Russia's backyard. And, you know, the, the, um, you know, that's, you know, that can have actually good consequences because there's a more realistic, um, uh, a more realistic picture of what's going on in the world. So when Georgia, um, in 2008, um, when basically the U.S. Uh, made it a policy to bring Georgia and Ukraine into NATO, um, Georgia's uh, soon after that thought the U.S. would have its back. And so it started, it basically uh, launched an invasion to get back uh, breakaway regions um, that Russia was defending. And that started the uh, Georgian-Russian uh, war um, of that year. And so, and, and, and so, I mean, if the U.S. didn't hold out hope for NATO, I mean, even if you're bad for Zelensky, because at one point he was saying before the, the, the war started, give us an honest answer. Like, if you don't want us in NATO, ever um you know if you if that's not going to work just you know tell us and you know we're not doing that we have an official like open door policy towards nato and so we probably made the ukrainians um more willing to antagonize the russians than they otherwise would have been so giving people sort of uh false hope about what we're going to do um and then making them believe we're going to be there for them when in many cases we're not i mean that also has uh downstream consequences i mean look i mean I, you know my, my my view is you know um it's uh, a large extent shaped by John Mueller, who wrote a book called The Stupidity of War. I mean, war is making less and less sense over time. There's a general trend for there to be less interstate war. I mean, countries that have gone into other countries in recent uh, decades, think about the US and Iraq, think about the US and Afghanistan, think about the Russians in Afghanistan. I mean, it's always just a terrible idea. Uh, even China's uh, exertion into Vietnam, I mean, that's a little bit more controversial whether that uh, worked out or not because they, you know, they smashed, uh, you know, they short some resolve and stopped uh, Vietnam from allying with uh, the Soviet Union, but it's it's also you know considered by a lot of people to have been a you know a um, a disaster, um, and so there's very little to be gained um, by uh, uh, invading and conquering other countries. It's it's harder to hold. It seems harder to hold uh, uh, territories that don't want to be governed um, than it used to be. And I think states are realizing that there's a general historical trend, you know, despite the fact that we're witnessing a war today. Uh, there's a general historical trend of there to be a lot less interstate conflict than they used to be. Some people will say, oh, that's because of American hegemony. You know, I, I doubt it. I think you just look at the results of what wars have been like um, in recent decades. And I think that states are making rational calculations that it's just it's just a very stupid thing to do. Okay. Um, going back to Ukraine, if we let the Russians get what they say they want, namely the breakaway regions being recognized and a, a rule out ruling out NATO membership for Ukraine, aren't we just emboldening, emboldening China to take Taiwan? I think that China, look, I think China, um, you know, I think China is going to do what it's going to do on, on Taiwan. I think that there's realities here that we're going to have to deal with, which is that China um, is surpassing the US economically. Uh, Taiwan, it's in its own backyard. Um, as uh, Stephen Shu, um, I, I talked about with Stephen Shu recently on my own podcast, um, basically, uh, China can uh, uh, blockade, you know, blockade Taiwan, and there's really no way um, to get around that. You know, it's it's you know, it's like, you know, it's it's just a question of you know, you're assuming that 
like there is a um, of all the things going on in the world like people say oh well you know the u.s pulled out of afghanistan so that emboldened russia i mean this is you know it's hard to you know it's like hard to make that connection it's like yeah like if you're willing to go to war with everyone always um then you prove you have resolve right um and you can um but like you know people can watch our politics they can see we're having a debate so they could sort of see that like you know it can go either way and you could always convince yourself it would go a different way right just because ukraine is one thing doesn't mean taiwan will be one thing which is not you know doesn't mean that afghanistan uh will be the same thing um look most countries i mean most i think we should pro- we should you know in a better way f- better way forward is not for the U.S. to guarantee the defense of, you know, every country that potentially could be threatened or the West. I mean, that's potentially disaster. That's overextension. I mean, the fact that if the U.S. wants to, you know, if you want, if China was going to want to invade Taiwan, I think it would do it while the U.S. was distracted with Ukraine. So, I mean, there's a cost in, uh, in, um, in getting involved in one place. It means you can't be somewhere else or it's harder to be uh, somewhere else. But the best thing to do is to, um, is to have a norm, uh, norm against non-interference uh, in the affairs of others. And, you know, encouraging countries to provide for their own defense. I mean, it, it, you know, I think that we can get a lot of mileage out of the fact that mark a markets don't like war. Um, so, you know, countries that are belligerent, I mean, they will suffer economically. Uh, be international public opinion is a thing. I think Russians are, you know, hated across much of the world now. People don't want to be pariahs. And see, you know, war is um, it's a really bad idea, like I said, in, in previous decades. So, yeah, I mean, there's you know, the, 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 the alternative to... America not defending everyone all the time is not that everyone starts starts conquering everyone else. I mean, some people do think that, and that's why they they argue for American hegemony. I don't think that's the case. I think the better alternative is a norm of state sovereignty and then encouraging countries to take up their own defense. Okay, well, I think you've done a very good job at uh, defending your position. Are there any other uh, counter arguments that you feel I haven't uh, presented to you that you'd like to discuss or refute? Um, no, I mean, no, I think you're, I think you did a good job of sort of summing up, um, you know, a lot of the conventional wisdom and a lot of, you know, the arguments that people make. And I think you thought of some, you know, a few ones that were even better than what people normally say. So, uh, no, nothing, nothing that comes to mind. Okay. And have you got anything else coming up on this, uh, topic that you'd like to alert listeners to? Um, not in the immediate future, but um, or nothing at least I want to announce right now. But you know, stay subscribed to my Substack, my Twitter, and then the uh, uh, CSPI uh, mailing list, which is cspi.substack.com for any updates that I do or my organization does. Great. Well, thanks so much for coming on my podcast. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Noah.